heavenly Jerusalem because of what Christ has done. And we can proclaim now, regardless of what we're going through, that Christ is ours. Through repentance and faith and looking to him, Christ is ours forevermore. Lord, impress that truth in our hearts today. We ask in his name. Amen. Uh, Ivan Moiseev, or uh, Vanya, as his friends called him, was a brave soldier uh, in the Soviet army, but he was actually still a, a braver witness for Christ. After his baptism, when he was about 16, he had an intense desire to want to share the good news of Jesus Christ uh, with friends and families, and the hope that he had in forgiveness of sins uh, through his death on the cross. Uh, and he preached the gospel with great enthusiasm and joy wherever he went. And then in November 1970, he was drafted into the Soviet army um, to perform the the two years required military service. Um, And when Vanya began to speak openly about God and his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, um, his fellow officers, military supervisors, began a systematic campaign of intimidation and torture upon him. In order to try and silence him, he wrote this, "'Even though I am a soldier, I work for the Lord.'" Though there are difficulties and testings, Jesus Christ gave me the orders to proclaim his word to this city. So whether in a meeting or in a military unit or whether to officers and soldiers, I will proclaim. Uh, One time after a discussion about God, Vanya was actually made to stand um, in the street throughout the whole night in his summer uniform. And the temperature was somewhere uh, 13 degrees below zero. Uh, And all throughout this ordeal, Vanya prayed for his persecutors and even sang hymns to God. Miraculously, somehow he did not freeze or beg for mercy. He was struck and beaten and starved and placed in a refrigerator. He was ridiculed and scorned, and yet he continued to witness to his Lord. And though threatened with beatings and punishments and death, he remained steadfast, unfrightened, because he was utterly conscious of his ultimate allegiance, of his ultimate heavenly home, and of his savior. He actually died at the age of 20 in 1972. <clears throat> and the reason I open with this story is because I think um, the life of Vanya can both challenge us and encourage us, uh, and hopefully illuminate something about this text this morning and encourage us to live for Christ. Um, So, I love the letter of Philippians. Um, I think it's supremely quotable. Um, So, Christian retailers are really quick to manufacture uh, Philippian verses into fridge magnets or coffee coasters or Instagram-curated images, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Or, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Or at the end of Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure... Whatever is lovely, think about such things. I'll make a case that it's probably the most hashtagable or Instagrammable book in the New Testament. Uh, you can come and debate that with me afterwards. Um, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul deeply loved the Philippian church. He loved their love for Jesus, their partnership in the gospel, and their sacrificial service for the churches uh, in Judea and afar. They demonstrated true Christian unity. Um, but Paul, he writes this letter, and he writes, therefore, those verses that I just quoted from prison, either in Caesarea or uh, probably in Ephesus, actually. 
And so it makes actually the, the joyful tone and the all-round positive flow of this letter even more surprising. He's writing within chains, from chains. And more than that, I think actually um, the joy of this letter, the difficulty that Paul's facing sheds something, sheds a little bit of light on our passage this morning and the big takeaway that we here at Charlotte Chapel are to have this morning. And it's this. Paul writes this letter not simply to express his love for the church, but actually to illustrate and to instruct an important truth. And it's this, that gospel opposition has led to gospel advance. Paul wants to illustrate and instruct an important truth throughout the whole letter of Philippians. And it's this, gospel opposition has led to gospel advance. We'll be looking at this passage uh, under two headings. And my first point is much longer than the second, so don't get worried as we get to the end of the first point, thinking that we're going to double that up. Firstly, heavenly citizenship results in heavenward living. Okay, Paul's passion, the Apostle Paul's passion, is for the glory of God in Christ. And that means his passion, by definition there, is for God's people to live out the reality of God's glory in Christ. And we see this here in verse 27. Paul writes this, whatever happens, or in the New Living Translation, if you got that, he says, above all. Paul's basically saying, here's here's the most important thing that I want you to know, Philippians. It's this, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the key phrase, the key word in this sentence is the conduct yourselves. It's uh, it's an imperative, or as my wife used to say to her seven-year-olds when she was a teacher, it's a bossy verb, okay, because it tells you what to do. So this, this bossy verb, this imperative, conduct yourselves, actually holds together verses 27 to 30 in many ways. And it's because of the content of this verb. Right, now I like to work with teenagers, so I like a bit of interaction. So just put your hand up if you know what the word peripatetic means. Come on, hands up. Don't be shy. That's great. Okay. So it comes from the, a Greek word. Next slide, peripateto. And basically, it literally means to walk about. So maybe you've got a peripatetic nurse in the community, and she goes and visits different houses. Or if you're a lecturer or a teacher or a preacher that likes to walk about, you might be described as peripatetic. Paul often uses this word to encourage or to command or to exhort God's people in their manner of life, and it's kind of filled with a rich Jewish idea of walking in the way of wisdom, walking in righteousness. Okay, let's have a look at a, a number of ways in which Paul uses it. Ephesians 4.1, as a prisoner of the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Peripateto is behind that verb. Colossians 1.10, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may... Live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Again, the same Greek word behind that uh, command. And 1 Thessalonians 4.1, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. In fact, as you are living. Again, same word behind those uh, phrases. So behind all these commands is that same uh, bossy verb, And so when we get to to verse 27 of Philippians 1, and we hear Paul say, conduct yourselves, you know, that's what we're expecting. 
But actually, Paul doesn't choose to use this word at all. He chooses another verb. It's polituomai, which basically doesn't mean walk in that rich kind of Jewish sense, but it literally means this. Next slide. It means to live as a citizen or to live out your citizenship. There's, like, there's a political flavor to it. And so Paul's calling the Philippians to, to live out their citizenship. What does he mean? Does he mean be a good Roman citizen? Work towards the good of the political institution of, of Philippi? Contribute to the gatherings at the amphitheater? Be polite at the baths? Get involved in the Roman games? Now, obviously, the Philippian church should love their neighbors and live peaceable lives amongst them. But actually, the clue to why Paul uses this comes a little bit later in the book of Philippians. Later on, uh, Paul contrasts those who focus on earthly things by reminding the church at Philippi in chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is where? In heaven. Paul's playing on words. Uh, The Holman Christian Bible, the CSB version, he actually picks up verse 27 as it translates it really helpfully. It says this, just one thing. Here's the most important thing. As citizens of heaven... Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And it's not just this verse that helps us, but there's actually something about Philippi as a city that helps illuminate the use of this word that Paul chooses to use. Um, I'm from Lincoln, many of you might know. Lincoln stands for Lincoln Lindum Colonia, which basically was a, a Roman colony, a place for retired soldiers and Roman citizens, and you don't need to be in Lincoln for more than an hour, really, um, to see the evidence of that colony, whether it's building architecture, roads, street names, um, the old Roman arches. So 2,000 years later, the evidence of that Roman citizenship, the Roman colony, is felt keenly. And Philippi would have been much the same. Philippi um, was the mother city, Rome, in, in miniature. So... Um, The presence of Rome, the occupation would have been felt keenly throughout the city. Everywhere you turn, not least by the armies patrolling straight through the city, the garrisons, the architecture. There were physical representations of Rome. But actually, by her way of life, her values, the the, the spiritual implications of Rome. You see, apart from slaves, those within the walls of Philippi um, were Roman citizens, which meant they essentially got to experience the privileges and the benefits of Rome. They experienced the rights and the freedoms of Rome. They identified with Rome. Rome's status was their status. Rome's laws, theirs laws. And so being um, tangibly associated with Rome would have been keenly felt in the city of Philippi. Opposition to Rome would have been an offense. And here's the point, right? In the same way that the citizenship of Rome was so tangibly felt in the city of Philippi, Paul calls the Philippians to live in such a way that their citizenship, their citizenship not of Rome but of heaven, is so tangibly felt within the colony at Philippi. They're to be a home from home, heaven in miniature in the city of Philippi. The Philippians weren't to be driven by Roman laws, but by the gospel and the glory of Christ. Paul's calling the Philippians 
and us here in Edinburgh in 21st century to rightly locate our identity. Never has the question of who we are, where we're from, or what we're made for been so hotly contested and confused as it is in our culture. If Philippi had the pressure and the pride of Rome to live up to, and I wonder what it is for us here today. What's our Rome? What facet of life fights for our allegiance, for us to identify ourselves to? Are we more ready to identify with our nationality, or our peer group, or our job, or our life experiences, or even our family, over and above our heavenly citizenship? You see, citizenship to Christ's kingdom should not only trump those other areas, but it should actually transform them. If you're a Christian here today, if you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in his life and death and resurrection, brother or sister, your citizenship is in heaven. Your passport, it doesn't say Scotland, Japan, Chile, Ghana, Malawi, or South Africa. It says Christ. You are in Christ. You're his. You belong to him. You live and you move in his being. As Ephesians 1.3 says, you're blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so evidence of our citizenship in heaven, of our citizenship here as Charlotte Chapel should be so palpable in Edinburgh that our neighborhoods, our streets, our neighbors, those that we interact with in the marketplace, in work, should sense, should feel it, should know it, should hear about it. And Paul, um, he helps the Philippians, he puts some meat on the bones, and he helps them see what this might look like. Look at verse 27, he says, Then, living your citizenship is worthy of the gospel of Christ, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. And he gives them two pictures, two kind of um, headings of, of what this looks like. Uh, next slide, please. There's the unity of being and a unity of purpose. Unity of being. So he wants them to stand firm in one spirit. So Paul wants to know that the church at Philippi, those, those citizens of heaven in that Roman colony there are standing firm. It's a, a military term, like soldiers on the battlefield, steady, immovable. How are they to do this? Well, he says, in the one spirit. It's a reminder from Paul to the unity and the power that enables the Philippian church to live as they do, in one spirit, in the Holy Spirit. The Philippian church, as we read in Acts 16, they were a mixed bunch. So you've got the rich businesswoman, you've got the slave girl, you've got the veteran soldier turned jailer. From a human perspective, you would look at them and you would think, well, there's more to divide them than to unite them. But from heaven's perspective, these guys could not be more unified. They could not be more equal. They could not be more brought together because they each possessed the one spirit. And actually, it's really the only way that they can ever stand firm against opposition. It's by recognizing and realizing what unites them. How easy would it have been to Lydia, for Lydia to just spend time with her rich businesswoman friends and to kind of avoid that weird slave girl that used to prophesy about the future? Or the tough jailer for him to avoid the kind of to-do businesswoman? Actually, 
knowledge of what unites them should radically transform their relationships. And there's a question for us, right? What, what unites us here at Charlotte Chapel? I think there are a lot of groups in our fellowship that have amazing commonalities, shared experiences that are rich and meaningful. Okay, perhaps it's that you're from Edinburgh that unites you. It's your Scottish identity. Or maybe it's that you're not from Edinburgh that unites you. Maybe you're from England or somewhere else. And maybe you've been in this church family for more than four decades. And you can remember the last six pastors. Ah, I remember Sidlow Baxter. You know, that's a very real shared experience. Some may have met through international fellowship or through Women's Morning Fellowship or YPM or you've done Christianity Explored together or you joined as a student. And some of those things are special and in some ways important, but in comparison, they are material. You see, what truly unites us, brothers and sisters, the true leveler of the, of the saints in Christ at Charlotte Chapel is the gospel, the life the ministry, the death, the sacrifice, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, our faith in him, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit into our lives that unites us as brothers and sisters, that empowers us. That's what unites us. That's the truth. That should trump every other division. Do we see each other in that way as brothers and sisters, blood-bought saints of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there true unity amid our diversity this is vital. This is the heartbeat of our life as a church. Unity in the spirit, one in Christ Jesus. Rich or not so rich, middle class or not so middle class, young, old, Scottish, British, European, majority world, whatever, one in Christ. This is how we stand together against the opposition. We have to have unity of being. But also, unity of purpose. Look at me again at the second part of Verse 27, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Okay, Paul's exhortation, his command here is to, is to strive or to contend. It's like athletic language now. We've gone from military language to athletic language. Um, I watched a, a little bit of the Olympics over the summer. Um, and a race that I wouldn't ordinarily watch, next slide please, but one that caught my eye was the, the eight men's boat race. And I mean, the speeds, firstly, that these guys can get to are incredible. But I think the striking thing, for me at least, was the, the synchronism, the teamwork. You know, whatever your number is, from bow to stern, actually each player must, by necessity, move in absolute unity in the same direction if they're ever to win. There's absolutely no point in you as a number four just, just smashing it out at your own speed. You know, you're just going to end up sending them off course or going out uh, of sync. There's a one mind, one attitude, one direction kind of shared vision. And if that's the case for a boat race, how much more, guys, for the sake of the cause of the gospel? And I think, honestly, in so many ways, we strive together well. We do move in the same direction well as a fellowship of believers. We're united behind the vision to see disciples of Jesus Christ made to the glory of God. We're united in, in uh, the desire to love God and love our neighbors and to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. We've gotten behind national visions to partner with the FIEC and, uh, and further afield with Pillar with regards to church planting. Many of our ministries are, are united in striving to the same goal. 
But guys, we can grow in this, right? Surely. I can grow in this. Surely we can grow in this. Can you imagine what Charlotte Chapel might look like if each member, each of you here today, apply this to your own heart, if each of us, united by our faith in Christ, powered by the Holy Spirit, were to contend, were to strive as one, pulling on the oars of faith in the same direction, motivated by the same vision, the same focus, how might God richly bless us and use us for his glory here in Edinburgh? There's a, a local mission event coming up over the next few months, uh, leading us towards Easter, beginning in our growth groups called Passion for Life. Why not, as an application, why not get behind that mission, behind that vision in prayer and in action? And see what God, God does to bless that. See, this kind of unity, this kind of single-mindedness, and this unswerving dedication to the glory of the gospel of Christ, it will not go through life unchallenged. There will be opposition, and that's why the Apostle Paul um, wants to bring to the Philippians' minds this truth. Continuing uh, verse 28, he says, Not to be frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, the opponents, they're not actually mentioned here, but there are other hints throughout the letter uh, that they seem to be Philippian citizens that um, strongly identify with, with Rome. And so the Philippians, in holding fast to their profession that Christ and not Caesar is king, has actually brought them into sharp opposition with some of these state enthusiasts. No doubt hearing jibes like, well, why don't you worship the emperor? He's the one who's bestowed all of his blessings on this great city. Why don't you bow down to the gods? What's wrong with our gods? What's wrong with Roman morality? We're progressive, you know. And the result will be, no doubt, opposition, gossip, slander, rejection, ostracism, full-blown attacks. And yet Paul's exhortation here is, do not be frightened of those who oppose you. Brothers and sisters, many of you know well that it is tough to be a Christian in this nation. And I might add particularly in schools, whether as a teacher or a pupil. Our culture doesn't quite say Caesar is Lord. But if you speak out against some of the cultural idols, you will find yourself in hot water. I think the big cultural idol of our day is the self as Lord. I am Lord. And you cannot contradict my thoughts or feelings or experiences but we're called to be steadfast, not like frightened horses on a battlefield. We're to stand firm in our convictions of the truth of the Lordship of Jesus Christ in order to win souls for his glory. And somehow our unity as a body of believers and our fearlessness in the face of opposition actually, verse 28 says, serves as a sign, an omen, some translations say, serves as an omen or a sign of our opponent's destruction. But check this out. It's also a sign. It's also a signal, an evidence of your salvation. Brother or sister, if you've spent some time recently suffering opposition for Christ, if you've spent time recently being rejected or ostracized or gossiped about because you've held fast to his word, held fast to his lordship, Know this, that this opposition is a sign of your salvation. Praise God for your faithful witness. Keep pressing on.
And it's not some strange thing that's come upon you either, brother or sister. Let's not, um, let's not forget that. That's why Paul reminds those in the church that this is normal. And this is my second point, that heavenly citizenship means opposition for Christ. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, I don't know about you, but I get really frustrated and discouraged when I'm sold something that turns out to not be what it was promised. Really silly example, um, recently I bought a keyboard and mouse combo set from an online retailer. Our top recommendation, it said, yeah, I can see why. Looked great, description was brilliant, cost was cheap, and that's really the reason I bought it. Um, But after literally two days, I realized that the main purpose of what the keyboard and mouse was to do had failed in in its task. Okay, it was to help me do my work and it literally failed. Um, I felt like I was so missold this item. I promised ease, but turned out to be false. Right? The gospel, following Jesus Christ, following the crucified and resurrected Lord, is not easy. Okay, the message is simple. We're sinners. We need to repent and turn from our sin and put our trust in Jesus, who is the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. It's free. The gospel is free and glorious. Okay, it's simple to understand, but it is by far easy, not easy to follow. And I think we're happy to affirm Paul's statement here, aren't we, in verse 29, right? It has been granted that you should believe. Yes and amen. It's been granted. It's God's, it's God's work. It's been granted for us to believe. But the second part, it's been granted that we suffer for his sake, I'm not so keen on that. I'm quite concerned as I look not just at the Western church, but actually as I peer into my own heart, as I peer to my own fears of our inability to suffer for the gospel. We must prepare our people and ourselves of the cost of following Christ. We need to instruct one another and the difficulties and the dangers and the toils of the Christian life. It's war It's spiritual war. You see, and if we do this well, if we preach this to our own hearts, and if we do it well to one another, when the trials come for the sake of the word, it won't be a surprise. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And that's why Jesus takes pains to warn his disciples about the way of the cross. Christian discipleship is cross-shaped. When his disciples, um, he says this in uh, Mark chapter 8, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And Paul in our passage in Philippians, he didn't see this this cost as a negative thing, far from it. Actually, the word that he uses is, for it has been granted. It's been graciously given. It's a gift. Paul's saying opposition and suffering for the gospel is a gift. Paul, you're mental. What are you talking about? Where on earth do you get that from? Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, church at Charlotte Chapel, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. 
for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this isn't suffering that accompanies all people living in a fallen world. This is specific. It's not the bereavement and the sickness and the sorrow that affects us all. It's the same type of suffering that Paul has. That's why he says that in verse 30. You're going through the same struggle you saw that I have and now still have. It's this kind of opposition. It's the opposition and the rejection from your friendship group at school because you won't celebrate something that you know to be against the word of God. It's the coldness that you regularly feel when entering a room of your spouse or your family because you've dared to share Christ with them. It's the course mates that laugh at you because you won't sleep around or get drunk or because you turn up to church on a Sunday. It's the angry atheist or the religious zealot online that wants to try and de destroy your faith. Or it's the boss at work that won't quit making your life difficult because your faith in Christ somehow makes them feel uncomfortable. It's this kind of opposition. Man, this sounds hard. Why bother? Why follow Jesus then? In some ways, that was the question of one of his disciples. He was like, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. We've sacrificed everything. And Jesus says this in Mark 10. Truly, I tell you, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel who will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children's fields, along with persecutions. And here's the kicker. And in the age to come, eternal life. It's the cross, then the crown. It's the grave, then glory, right? And somehow, in God's providential purposes, opposition to Jesus in our lives actually serves to advance the gospel. So when we hear in our growth groups or our yak groups or our timeout groups or our women's morning fellowship or our international fellowship that one of our members is receiving opposition for the gospel and that it's actually led to opportunities to proclaim Christ. We can rejoice with them. We can pray and we can be like those disciples in Acts 4 who says, praise you, Lord, that we have been counted worthy to suffer for the name. I'm closing now. Many soldiers in the communist army came to faith in Christ because of the bold witness of Vanya as he proclaimed Christ amid beatings and sufferings, as he prayed for his persecutors out in the cold in his shorts and t-shirts because he knew his true identity. He knew his heavenly citizenship and the power of the gospel and the glory of Christ and the enabling of the Spirit enabled him to stand unswervingly in the face of fierce Opposition, saints at Charlotte Chapel, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. For who knows what the Lord Almighty will do through your witness and through mine. Let's pray. God in heaven, we confess that um, sometimes we locate our identity and our citizenship in other material places. Father, we confess that at times we are fearful of standing firm on your word. We're fearful of opposition. We're frightened like scattered horses on a battlefield. But Lord, the truth is that because of your glorious work, you have uh, made us citizens of your 
uh, of your glorious and eternal kingdom. We're citizens of heaven. There's an eternal and unshakable seed planted in our hearts that cannot be moved. You've given us your spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, who strengthens and unites us. You've called us not to fear, but to stand firm and to strive with one purpose for the glory of the gospel. And we ask, Lord, that by your favor and in your grace and mercy, you would help us do that. The, the saints here at Charlotte Chapel and across this nation would be of one mind, of one accord, one faith, moving in one direction. And you would be pleased, even in the face of opposition, to bring about salvation to those who don't know you. And we ask that this will all be done for the glory of King Jesus.